You're tuned in to the Manjeet Minhas podcast. The world of business is a challenging one. From the youngest entrepreneurs to the biggest and most respected names across Canada, you need to have a strong will, determination, and skills to navigate to the top. I'll be talking to everyone from budding entrepreneurs to the established leaders in the world of business. You'll hear their stories of where they were, where they are, and where they're going. I'm Manjeet Minhas, and this is my podcast. Hello, and welcome to today's show. My guest today is Wes Hall. Wes holds many titles and responsibilities, including chairman and founder of Kingsdale's Advisors, the Black North Initiative, and KSS Hold Company. He is also a member of the board of directors for the Toronto International Film Festival, also known as TIFF, Pathways to Education Canada, and the Sick Kids Foundation. He also just released a brand new book called No Bootstraps When You're Barefoot, My Rise from a Jamaican Plantation Shack to the Boardrooms of Bay Street. And also, some of you will know, he has been my fellow dragon on the stage for the last two years, also known as two seasons on Dragon's Den. We have so much to discuss today, so let's get started. Welcome to the show, Wes. Reggie, thanks for having me. Great hanging out with you today. Yes, thank you. So as I discovered from reading the book, you were born and raised in St. Thomas, Jamaica, and then you lived with your grandmother along with your 13 brothers and sisters in a small tin shack. And you learned your entrepreneurial ways by watching your grandmother work multiple jobs to keep everybody fed. And I would like to say alive, which is really important too. And then you moved to Canada at the age of 18. And so maybe we can start your story where it starts in Jamaica, especially since I'm really happy that you wrote this book and that you're sharing your story. Because I think a lot of people, especially the title, it takes everybody aback, including myself when I read it. In that many people believe that people are successful, that are successful, came from roots and came from a background or experiences that actually helped them into making them where they are today. And yours is very different from that. Yeah. And I think that's kind of why I started the story from the beginning. A lot of people see the finished products. So if you look at the front of the book, you see this guy in some cool slacks, some plaid <laughs> slacks back in the 70s. That's 1976. And he's just like looking all confident and everything, right? And literally, I was like six years old. And then you look at the back cover, it shows you the still confident West Hall, a little bit more aged, and but the same, the same kind of uh, vibe, right? I start telling the story really about what happened when I was born. I was abandoned in a house by my mother. My, my birth mother had at the time, living with her, my sister Joan was four myself, 18 months, and my brother Ian, I was six months old, and she just left us and never came back. She boiled a pot of porridge and left it on the stove, and we ate it all, and we were crying, my brother and I. That neighbor came and said to my sister, what's going on inside? And it's like, the porridge is done, and the kids are crying. They're hungry. And the neighbor went to the plantation where my grandmother was working to get her and say, your grandbabies are hungry and abandoned in a house. Go get them. And my grandmother came to get me, and that's how it started. And at the time, my grandmother was raising the three of us that, that, that went. Then she had five of my mother's kids and then my nephews that were there. So she really had 10 dependents, grandkids dependents on a plantation worker's salary. Think about it. You're working on a plantation, how much that is. That's not a lot of money. Nothing. You cannot support yourself, much less uh, 10 dependents. So she was a very industrious person. So I remember her supplementing her income by actually making puddings and sell it in the markets. And it was quite interesting because 
that's where I learned entrepreneurialism from because I remember my grandmother, because to make the pudding, we didn't have electricity. We didn't have kitchens. It's all stove. So we'd go to the bush, get wood, make the stove, and then she would make these amazing puddings. But you can only make so many. But her pudding will always get sold out at the market first. Always. As soon as she get in the market opens, Julie's pudding is gone within an hour. So what did my grandmother do? A lot of people would go, I'm going to make more puddings. But she's like, okay, I'm going to just charge more for my pudding because I can't make, you know, that many fires. It's, it's a limited quantity that I can make. So she upped the price. And people started to get upset and say, Mom, Julie, why are you, you pudding is so expensive? And, but guess what? They were buying it just the same, right? So her margin went up and her supply, you didn't have to go up in her supply. So I learned that. And funny, Manjit, when I started Kingsdale, that's a concept that I started. I'm going to build a boutique firm, create mass demand for it, and I'm going to charge an arm and a leg. So I learned that from just watching that woman juggle. You learned the theory of supply and demand early, early on. And also the, the idea of adjustable pricing. And I think that so many people don't learn that all their lives, especially entrepreneurs. And you were right in the thick of it. And like you say, you didn't know that's what you were learning, but you did apply it to your life 30 later. years later. Exactly. Fascinating. Later, I look back and I go, man, look at the lessons that I learned from this woman. But I was learning like, you know, how kind she was. Like she came, she was 60 years old when she got us in that uh, tin shack. She was 60. So think about you approaching retirement or supposed to be retiring. You worked all your life. You have nothing to show for it because you're still in poverty. And then you have all these other kids now that you now have to look after. And you know, you're going to have to look after them for the rest of your life because they're babies. Right. And so even if you live until you're 80 or 90, chances are those kids are going to be a part of your life until you die. That's the, it's like, that's the sentence that she got when she got all these grandkids. And oddly enough, my grandmother, up until the day she died, she had great grandkids she was still raising. Could you imagine that? She never stopped mm-hmm. raising other people's kids. And she was never resentful at all. Never resentful. She never blamed us. She never blamed her kids to say that they're irresponsible and they caused this. She just did what she had to do. So I take that in my life now because when I come to yeah, when I came to Canada, September 27, 1985, I was this bright-eyed 16-year-old that came here. And I just look at this, this, this world, this new country, this new world, and I go, I have to be successful here. I just have to be. But when things happen in my life that were negative, I used the same attitude that my grandmother used. I wasn't resentful about it. I just found a way to work around it or to work with it. And so those lessons that she taught me so young in my life really carried me to this day. And I think that goes along with so much of what we're told, but it's sometimes harder to do. 10% of life is what happens to you and 90% of it is how you react to it. Yep. And I think that you're a great example. And obviously, so is your grandmother in in the fact of what a true caregiver is, is that you're giving and you don't expect anything back other than the feeling inside that you are giving and taking care of somebody, which is hard because most of us in human nature is usually to expect something back and there be a me time, right? Yeah. Selflessness is something that is a a trait that most people don't have because you always think about what's in for me, especially in the business world. The concept is if I'm going to do something for you, what's in it for me? What am I going to get in return? And as investors, for example, we go, we're going to invest in your company. We're going to get in return profits. Yes. You know, so we're always in the game of where it's an investment and we're going to get something back. We're putting something in, we're going to get something out. 
But could you imagine just keep on putting stuff out and you're getting nothing back in return? You just keep on putting it, putting it, putting it like she was. And she knew doing it that I would never be in a position to repay her. In her mind, that's what she's thinking. None of these kids are going to repay me. Why? Because everybody who lived in that neighborhood, they work in a plantation, they live in poverty, and they move like on like that for generations. So she knew that in her mind, I was going to be one of those kids. She's going to raise me to a certain point, And then I'm not going to go to school because none of my, my sisters grad, you know, left school by you know, basic school. So they didn't go to high school or anything. And then they just went straight to the plantation to work in the plantation. Same thing with my brothers. So for her, she was raising us to do exactly the same thing. So she was not going to get a return on her investment. And so the reason why I'm so sad by the fact that she wasn't here to see my achievement was because, you know, I was the one who broke that mold. I was the one who go, okay, guess what? I got out and I'm going to take as many people out as possible. And the one person that I could have gotten out that I wanted to get out, I didn't get successful fast enough to help her. And she died in that tin shack. So the reason why I do all the things that I do today from a philanthropic point of view is really to pay respect and appreciation to her because I can't do it to her directly anymore. So I can do it by the way that I deal with other people. Right. Very true. Obviously the lessons that she taught you are still everlasting. And so what made your story change? Why were you different than the other 12 around you when you were growing up? What was that fire in you that said, I'm going to get out and I am not going to work on the plantation? You know, uh, Manjit, there's two things uh, that there's this thing, nature and nurture. My brothers and sisters were raised by the same woman. And here I am, and they didn't make it. So is it nurturing? Or is it in my nature to push? And it wasn't in their nature to push. But sometimes when I was younger, especially when I started my firm, Kingsdale, I thought, I look and say, man, I'm, I'm, I'm a hard worker. I'm working so hard. And that's why the business is successful, because I work so hard. Well, there's a lot of people who work just as hard or harder, and they didn't get the same level of success. But I got a lot of breaks along the way, and they call that luck. There's a lot of luck that happened. There's people that I met along the way. Let's say, for example, my dad didn't leave Jamaica when he was 24 years old to come to Canada. He left in 1970. Let's say he didn't do that. I wouldn't be in Canada. And my eventuality would be the plantation because I would have no opportunity to get out from there. One may say, well, because of your hard work, you probably would have made it in Jamaica just the same. Well, when you're poor in Jamaica, it's a terminal condition. It's not a curable condition, unfortunately even though it should be. But when I came to Canada, that poverty was cured because now I could get free education. If I'm smart enough, I could get a scholarship to go to university. And then if I work hard enough and I'm smart enough and I do all the right moves, when I get into the corporate world, I can maneuver my way into success. Those barriers, poverty was never a barrier to do that. Yeah, like you say, that it is a different reality and, I, and, and there's more opportunities here. Mm -hmm. My dad tells a very similar story. He was the first one in his family to leave. They were not poor per se. They were middle class. But the idea of something better for yourself, more opportunities, and also the fact that it's not for you only, it would be for more people that you're going to get out and be able to bring up. And so you say in 1985, then you came yeah. to Canada. And yeah. what did you think? What did you dream about on the way here that you were going to be what skills, what talents yeah. do you think that you had? 
so when you get the, the opportunity to finish the book, you'll see what I meant. I left my grandmother. My mom showed up in my life when I was 11. And then she brought me to live with her in the city. And I realized later that it was my dad who forced her to do that. Because my dad thought me living with my grandmother, too much hardship, get me away from my grandmother, which was the worst thing that he's ever done, by the way. He, you know, Because yeah, I went to live with my mom, who was incredibly abusive. And at 13 years old, my mom threw me out. So from 13 to 16, I was really living on the street, living on my own in Jamaica. And so at 16, when I came here, September 27th, 85, that was why I said it was such a change to my life because I went from living on my own from 13 to 16 to now being in a structured environment, you know, living at my dad. So I remembered nothing about the journey from the airport in Jamaica, where I was living in Jamaica or staying in Jamaica to the airport. But I remembered everything from when I landed in Toronto to when I went to my dad's subdivision in, in Malvern, Scarborough. I remembered everything. I remember landing at the airport. I remember walking down, walking outside the international area. And I saw my, my stepmom that I've met for the first time, my older sister, Marcia, my brother, uh, Michael, and my two younger siblings, and my, and my sister, Chanel, and my dad. That I've, I only met my dad a couple of times before that. And they had a sign and I walked up and there's, there's their, you know, this is me. And I remember it has getting into this car called Betsy's, this big car, and we loaded all in it and drive it along the 401. I've never seen a highway like that before, ever. And I went to Malvern where my dad was living and he just, it was a brand new subdivision in Malvern. It was only about a handful of houses and there was dust all over the place when it's hot and it was mud when it's raining. But he brought me into this house. I shared a room with my brother and it was a nice big house, proper kitchen, running water, electricity. Keep in mind, I was on my own before that. And now I'm in a structured environment. And that's when I knew I want to be like this guy. I want to be like my dad. I want to be just as successful as him. He's got a nice family. He's in a nice house. But he was a factory worker. And my mom, my stepmom was a factory worker. To me, that was success. That's what I wanted to be. And then when I left my dad's house two years later, because he was too strict, I was on my own. Now this guy wanted to put down rules and all this. And I'm like, I can't handle that. I'm leaving. I left my senior high school and started to live on my own ever since then. And then I got the opportunity to come down to Bay Street and I saw a completely different level of success. And once I saw Bay Street, I got a mailroom job and I was pushing a mail cart around. I saw success, the success that I wanted. And that's when I started to plot to achieve that level of success. And that's what started this journey for me. It goes so case in point with, and I think I'm not going to put my words in your mouth and I'll ask you later, but one of the reasons why I wanted to be on the Dragon's Den uh, when they asked was because I truly believe that you can only dream or be what you can see. And yeah. if you can't see that that is a possibility for your life, you can't even dream that that would be your definition of a success. And that is an amazing example of that. It totally is because, like I said, when I saw my dad, that's success. But my success, it was limited based on what I was seeing around me. But when I came down here, and I've never been in the core before, so this was something brand new. I saw these buildings up close and personal. These are things I see on television. Mm. And I remember stepping off the elevator on the 13th floor of Commerce Court West, where the law firm was. And it was like stepping into an episode of LA Law. It's like, it's, uh, it's, it's suits. And it's like, I'm like, wow, this is like, this is cool. 
And I signed the application, signed the papers, got the job. But because I saw all those people wearing suits, I went and I went to Goodwill and I got myself a suit. And I showed up on Monday, pushing the mail cart with a suit on and tie. And the guys in the mail room were laughing at me because they were wearing jeans and T-shirt. And they're like, people are going to think you're a lawyer. I'm like, what's wrong with that? Right. Because, I, you know, so as I was pushing that mail cart around, I knew, I just knew it. I, I just go, I see people in corner offices doing conference calls and their feet on their desk. And I'm like, man, that's a pretty cool life. And then I started asking, what did that guy do? Okay, he's a senior partner and he's in charge of this department. What does that person do? Then they start talking to me about M&A. What's M&A? And then I went to the library that was upstairs and I went to the librarian and I said, hey, Richard, what's M&A? Oh, there's a, it's got mergers and acquisition. Go over there in this section and read up on it in this section. Okay, about the securities. This guy said he's a securities lawyer and he's working with the OSC on this issue. Okay, go in this section and you can read up about all these different things. So I would spend my time doing all those things. And then when I'm not pushing my mail cart, people would see me and they start throwing down terms and I start to understand it. And I start to have bantering back and forth with them. And so it opened up my mind. And that's when I go, yeah, you can't see it. It's hard to imagine being it. And so I saw it. I saw, but here's what I didn't see, Manjit. I did not see anyone that looked like me in my travels around the mail, pushing the mail cart around. But it's interesting because even though I didn't, it didn't put in my mind that I couldn't be one of them mm. because I never let race be a factor of what I could or could not accomplish. I never used that. And maybe it's because of my Jamaican upbringing with my grandmother, because when I went to school, my school teacher was black. The principal was black. Police officer at the station was black. The sergeant was black. Judges were black. Lawyers were black. Doctors were black. So to me, my blackness was never an obstacle. My poverty was, though. So when I came here and that poverty part was cured, I go, I'm not going to let being black prevent me from thinking big. It led me to continuing to doing what I'm doing today and continuing to take chances and continuing to meet people who go, Wes, I would like to help. Yeah, that's fascinating in that how you view yourself is very different and what often what you feel like the obstacles in your life are, because many people would say the other way around. Yeah. I have the opportunity to educate myself, to talk to people in the environment that we live in, in North America, but money might, is my hindrance and, yeah. or, and, or. So it's interesting always what we internalize as to what our hurdles are that we need to overcome. And so many of them are sure are real, but many of them are in our mind and definitely our mindset. I do appreciate the fact that there are systemic issues that Black, Indigenous people of color face in, in our society. There's no question about that. Right. But, and I'm never going to use myself as an example as to why the system works, because if that's the case, there should be a hundred of me. So I do appreciate the fact that there is that barrier. And keep in mind, I talk about my brothers and sisters that were born in Canada. So the ones in Jamaica weren't as successful, but the ones who were born here aren't as successful as well. But they were educated. Well, they went to universities and they have great degrees and so on. But that systemic barrier was different for them than it is for me. And the perception of it was different for them than it is for me. Mm -hmm. I didn't view it as a barrier. They viewed it as a barrier because when they were going to schools, they didn't see those examples and those role models that look like them to say they can be it. And along the way, there are people either consciously or subconsciously telling them that you can't do this or you can't be this. So I didn't grow up hearing that. 
I just grew up hearing that you're a poor guy. People laughed at me because I didn't have shoes on when I went to school. And that was the issue that I had to fight. I like that clarification. Absolutely. So you decided that you were going to go to university. And what did you then dream of yourself to be? Was it that lawyer? Was it that M&A specialist? Where did you see uh, or uh, everything, anything where anybody's going to hire you? <laughs> lawyer. So I wanted, so here's my, my journey. So when I was pushing that mail cart, there's, there's internal politics at the law firm. The law firms, the, the lawyers and the students, the article and student do not mingle and mix with the staff, the help. But when we're in a suit and when I'm not pushing the mail cart, they thought it was an article in student. So the article in student would want to show off and tell me all the deals that they're working on and stuff. And that's where I learned the language that I talk about, the M&A and all the stuff, because everybody wants to talk about the big files that they're working on and all that kind of stuff. So they were helping me along the way. And the junior lawyers, they too thought I was, uh, I was one of them. So they would talk to me again when I didn't have the mail cart. But then when they realized who I was, they go, hey, you speak well, you know stuff, you're studying up in the library and everything like that. The company has a program where that if you go to uh, be a law clerk, they'll pay for it. And then you can be like a junior to the lawyers. And I'm like, I want to do that. So I went to George Brown, got my law clerk certificate, and I applied for a position as a law clerk in stipends. And the head law clerk told me that you'll never be a law clerk in this company. Now, I don't know why. I remember I told you about not using systemic racism as a reason for me not to get ahead. When I looked around the department, all I saw were women. And I figured that she just didn't want a man in the department. So what did I do? I applied outside the firm because there's an obstacle there. I went outside. If I had used systemic racism, I would feel that the same thing would apply at other law firms. So why bother applying there? And then I'm stuck with that attitude. So I applied there and Luck of all luck, somebody from that law firm, Cassis Brock and Blackwell, called me back and said, we're not looking for a law clerk, but one of our clients is. Would you mind if we send your resume over? I said, absolutely. The client happened to be Canvas Global, which at the time was the largest broadcaster in Canada. And the, right, the general counsel was looking for a right-hand person, a guy named Glenn O'Farrell. So I went in with, for the job interview, not having any practical experience, and the guy hired me for the job. And I became a law clerk there and then in-house and had to figure it out. But while I was there, I go, I now need to go to law school. So they write me a nice reference letter. I have it to this day, the beautiful reference letter from my, the general counselor and from the CEO. This guy's bright and not, didn't get into law school. And now I decide, okay, I got to figure something else to do because clearly you can't be a lawyer without if you uh, can't get into law school. And I don't want to be a law clerk for the rest of my life. So what else can I do? And that's when I get, got into business and I came back on Bay Street, worked at CBC Mellon and go, I'm going to work my way up to whatever I want to be. And that's what led me to finally starting my own company. And it's interesting, as you saw barriers, you took right and left turns. Yes. Where you saw that there was opportunity that could help you get to your goal. But also you had a lot of sponsors and allies yes, along well, the way. And I think that they obviously all saw something in you not only that talent, but that hard work and that yearning, I imagine, for knowledge and to be better and bigger, because that much I definitely know about you, that you're always looking to learn from different opportunities and other people. I am a student for life. There's everybody, like, I just hired somebody yesterday. I'm going to learn so much from this guy. But that's why I hired him, because he has skills that I don't have. 
a lot of people don't realize that when you get to a certain level in business, the learning continues because that's how you continue to move up. And, and you always bring people in that have things that you don't bring to the table. So mm. if I was one of those insecure individuals that don't like to bring people in that are smarter than me, I would have still been stuck in Jamaica. I would have been stuck in Malvern still. I would probably still be in the mailroom. None of these things that have happened to me would have happened. But once I start to build my businesses now, I realize the way to get faster results is to bring people who can think differently and who can think in ways that I can't think. I bring those people in and I supplement you know, my weaknesses with their strength. Now, with Kingsdale, for example, when I started the firm, we're industry agnostic. So today we could be working on a railroad mandate. The next day it could be a tech mandate. The next day it could be financial services banking mandate. When I get involved in a file, I have to know the company inside out. I have to know everything about railroad and I have to know about precision schedule railroading. I have to know about the metrics that they use to determine the success or failure for railroad. I got to know about operating metrics, for example. Same thing in financial services, same thing in oil and gas, same thing in mining, same thing in all these different sectors. So when I'm advising clients, I have to know their business. So you have to continually learn. It's a very good point. And I think that anybody who doesn't stays stagnant, their company, themselves, because everybody passes them by. So, so Menji, somebody could hire me today. Tomorrow, I have to start advising them on the issue. And I don't know what they, it's kind of like on the show, right? On the show, somebody walk up to us and go, hello, Dragon. My name is Wes Hall, and I would like to pitch Kingsdale Advisors, and I want 10% for 10 million, whatever the case may be, right? We know the show. Everybody knows the show. They watch the show. But we as Dragons don't know who these people are. Never. We don't know anything about them. We just, there's the, there it is. And we have to learn right there on the fly. So it's up to your smarts. It's up to all the instinct that you've developed over the years of doing business to get to understand this person, to understand their business, to determine whether or not you're going to make an investment decision. Life is exactly the same way. You go into a room and you got to figure the room out and you got to know who the friendlies are. You got to know how to work that room to your advantage. Completely agree. And I think some of that comes from time. Some of that comes from putting yourself out there and getting positive reinforcement, having some success for sure, but also just often going for it and saying that I know my shit, like I am confident in my skills. I know that I can ask the right questions and respond and learn if I need to. And so I think that that too is a mindset and having a lot of not only experiences, but people around you sometimes that help support that. And yeah. a big part of why you have been able to do that, and maybe we can talk about that now, is Black North. Mm -hmm. So what prompted you to start Black North and, and why is it so important? Black North was a concept that I thought about back in September 2018, because as I travel Bay Street and up and in and out of uh, corporate boardrooms, I haven't really seen any Black people there for all these years that I've been working on Bay Street and advising companies. And then I started to go, maybe we could do something about it. So I went on LinkedIn and I actually started to look for people with Black images on their profile and, and, and what title they have, whether it be a director or a vice president. And I just send them a random message in LinkedIn saying, hey, I want to put this group together to want to see if we can work together to change the, the, the landscape and the look of, of Bay Street and make Bay Street a little bit more inclusive. Would you like to be a part of that group? And some people literally say to me, 
take me off your list. Not interested. <laughs> and, and others go. That's how cold calling goes, you know. <laughs> that's, that's a, a typical entrepreneur story, right? right? You go and you pitch somebody and you thought these people would love you and they go, no, thank you. And then you got to move on. You got to move on to the next person. You can't right. be heard. And so I, I ended up getting like about six to people that, uh, that agreed to meet. And I wanted to meet at my house. And we invited the prime minister to speak at a, like a fireside chat. He, didn't, he couldn't come. And we decided to have the meeting at my house. And then after we said, we're going to call this group, the, I'm, I said, I'm going to call the group, the Black North group. Okay. Mm. And I started to send notes to them every now and then. Oh, there's this event that we're going to put on. There's this stuff going on there and there and there. And then somebody sent me a text and saying, Wes, have you seen the video? And I said, yes, because I thought it was the Ahmad Arbery video when the guy was jogging through a neighborhood and got shot. And he said, no, no, there's one that's more egregious. And I watched the George Floyd video and I was in my home office and in front of my mirror, there's a, in front of my desk, there's a mirror. And I looked in the mirror and I literally, Manjit, I saw George Floyd because I saw just a reflection of a black person. George Floyd was driving a Mercedes Benz. Nobody asked him if he worked on Bay Street. Nobody asked him how successful he was when he got pulled out of the car. He was accused of doing something that I don't really know what a real or fake $20 bill looked like. You know, I could look at it. I take something, somebody give me change at a store. I put it in my wallet because it looks like it's real. But mm-hmm. professionals, sometimes they look in the light and they shine lights on it and go, no, no, it's not a real bill. I don't know that. So could you imagine that happened to me and somebody treated me like that just because I made an innocent mistake and I'm black. So I sat down and I looked in the mirror and I, and I pictured it, what happened to him happening to me. And I sat down and I go, I was so profoundly affected by it. I sent a note to all the boards that I was on because we're having weekly meetings. And I said, I can't be at board meetings this week because something that I just saw that all of you saw, it affected me mentally and emotionally. And I couldn't be with you as a result. And the thing that saddened me the most was that everyone who I was serving on their boards with, dealing with all those issues with, saw it, and not a single one of them said to me, Wes, I'm sorry. Not that they're apologizing on behalf of people who are perpetrating those crimes, but if something like that happened to someone in your ethnic group, and you show up to work the next day, and you didn't even acknowledge to your colleague from that ethnic group that something atrocious like that just happened to them, they would feel that you're insensitive. And that's how I felt about the people who just didn't say anything to me and went back to business like business as usual when it was start to play out on television. So I started to write about my experiences as a black person. And I submitted to the Global Mail, my piece, just to say, hey, here's what I think. And I wrote it in. And then they published it on the front page. And it says, when I look in the mirror, the headline, when I look in the mirror, I see George Floyd. Because that's one of the parts that I use about that standing in the mirror and looking. And then all these business leaders saw it. All the people that helped over the years, proxy fights and hostile takeover bids and merging their companies and so on, they saw that and they go, I did not know. And one of the, the, the things that they were profoundly affected by was my experience of jogging through my neighborhood in Toronto. And a white woman fell in front of me and I hesitated to help her because I didn't know the consequences that would happen to me for helping. I didn't have my identification with me. She could be disoriented because she fell. Then my, because I'm the only black man in the neighborhood, my white neighbors see it. Police shows up with white. What's going to happen to me? Right. So I start to say what happened to George Floyd could have easily happened to me in that circumstances. And I asked business leaders in my neighborhood on Bay Street, how many of you would hesitate that doing a good deed to somebody else? 
as a result of potential consequences that you may experience. And so I start to get calls from all these business leaders. The first call I got was from my friend, Victor Dodig. Victor is the CEO of CIBC. And Victor texts me and he said, Wes, can I call you? He called me up and he said, Wes, I didn't know. How can I help? Prem Watts, uh, Fairfax. Second, Prem actually emailed and said, Wes, can I come over to your house? He lived down the street. And he came over to the house, sat in the backyard. And he said, listen, I came from India 30 years ago. I built my wealth from the ground up. I know Black people are treated differently, but until I read your article, I didn't get it. How can I help? And that's the calls after calls all day, all day from some of the most prominent business people in this country. And that's when I go, hey, why don't we do this? Why don't we start this group called the Canadian Council of Business Leaders Against Anti-Black Systemic Racism? And why don't we get you as a CEO to sign a pledge that you sign, not your company, that you sign that says, I'm going to do something about it within my organization. And that's what they did. And that's why we have over 500 companies who agreed to that. And that's how Black North officially got going. Fascinating story, because I think that it's interesting that you set and, and planted those seeds of Black North and what it was going to be two years earlier. Yes. But sometimes there's moments that spark a direction, especially in an organization or a nonprofit or a charity that has bigger vision. But it sparks conversations that are immediate and things yep. that are happening in our life right now. And I think that so many of us in a variety of different ways, it sparked some very tough conversations when the George Floyd video was released. Also, I think that we were all not only in the pandemic, but we were at home and we were connecting in a different way. And we were all thinking of not only our lives, but decisions that we've made because of things that we've heard or seen and what might be those consequences. I definitely know that it sparked some interesting conversations around our tables too, including stories that I had never heard from my brother about how he was pulled over in, in Calgary and things that I had never heard about. And as you know, Ravinder and I are very close. We not only run a business together, but personally, and my mouth dropped when we were having these conversations because he too was very open and vulnerable in the fact that he saw himself in different ways. And I think for a lot of people in that article that you wrote that was so first person and so personal was the fact that other people's stories are so closely related to ours in a lot of different ways that we don't always see that. We're a small world after all. And many of our experiences are that too. And until you can put yourself into somebody else's shoes, not only can you have conversation, but you can spark change. And that's definitely what you've been able to do with companies that have signed on, but also companies that maybe haven't signed on, nope. but also are doing it in their own way. And maybe even having DE&I conversations. Yep. How do we have diversity, equity, and inclusion in what we are able to do? Because not everybody's able to do it on the size and scale of CIBC. And I think that that is where it starts. It starts small often. With one person, you know, like, listen, when I started my business, Anjit, I started as with one individual, me, mm. one individual, collectively, our businesses have over a thousand people, but it was started with one person. But if I built a bad culture to begin with, there would be a thousand people with that culture built into them and that attitude and mentality. So we are, we're not just focusing on the big companies. We're focusing on companies because a lot of companies start out small and become big. And if you build the culture right initially in terms of inclusivity, then you're going to have it as you grow as a business. 
And so what we're saying, when you look at the companies who signed up, like, yeah, there's some large companies that sign it because it's going to create headlines that these companies are able to be making bold, you know, proclamations that they're going to do something like this. Because if they're all smaller companies, nobody would care. Right. Nobody would care, but they don't really think about the fact that at one point, Shopify was just one guy <laughs> that has an idea. And so I look at it to say the more companies that we can get on board to think this way, and it's not just about, you know, bringing, you know, black people and indigenous and people of color in your organization. How do you integrate them in your businesses to, for them to be successful? When I wrote the article and talk about my experiences, how is Canada better to prevent somebody like me to be their true self, to bring my true capabilities to the table and to help our country? It's not better off to minimize my success and my contribution to society. It's not helpful when we have a doctors come to this country and they're driving taxis, our janitors, engineers are, are being utilized in a way that's beneath their skill set. But there's certain biases that we have because somebody come from a certain place or somebody look a certain way. And as a result of those biases, we pull them back and prevent them from contributing. And if you pinpoint why Manjit is not hired or why Wes is not hired, you can't specifically say anything that's concrete to say, that's why they're not in my business. They're educated, they're hardworking, they have all the building blocks to be successful, but yet they're not in your businesses. Why? It's not to say we're scolding them. It's really to say we're encouraging them to be, have an open mind and it's the same thing with employees. You know, you view them as an asset and you bring them in and give them the right tools to get the job done and to be successful. You're going to find that they're a massive asset to your organization and that will open the door for so much more coming into your businesses. Exactly what you're saying. Everybody's just looking for a level playing field in order to be them tr true self and bring their talents and skills to the workplace and definitely help build something that wasn't there before, because I truly believe that. I always say diversity is being asked to the dance and inclusion is being asked to dance. Two <laughs> very right. different things. Yeah. If we continue to have that hesitation there, it's going to seep into everything we do subconsciously. Every decision we make is going to seep into it. That bias that we have of that culture of that race, that accent, you know, where that person came from, that bias is always going to be there. Right? Are we going to say, you know, we're looking at all the troubles in the world and different parts with trouble. Are we going to indict all the people from those regions because of what the leaders in those regions are doing that we don't agree with? Because there's a lot of people there that are great people that don't agree with that regime. But yet, when we hear their accent and when we think about where we come from, we automatically think about a negative consequence. If we thought about the U.S. and Trump, all of a sudden we go, all the U.S. people are bad because Trump, we didn't like Trump. Those are the things that we say and we start to think about where does that bias come? And it's going to seep into all the places that, that, that it doesn't belong. Absolutely. It's a good point. And I think that so many of us are often aware, but when we start asking ourselves some of those tougher questions and going deeper, even I know whenever I'm asked, I start thinking and think, oh man, I have so many biases. And when I am one who is not only conscious of them already, but somebody who is talking about them, good and biases, they go both ways, right? Yep. And I think that we're all human and it's fine to recognize that, but it is definitely something that we all, no matter who we are, and especially as we 
age in positive and negative ways. Sometimes we're able to open up or we close down. And without those pushes, we're not able to sometimes expand our thinking as to how it's affecting us. If we don't ask those questions every day, Manjit, we're going to become just like other people that we don't appreciate. Very true. (laughs) Become one of those people in our own way. And or pass um, a lot of those on to our children and the next generation. Yes, yes. And that also is not right or not fair for sure. You've had so many great accomplishments personally, and, you know, we've definitely talked about them professionally. Mm -hmm. And so tell me a little bit about when the producers at Dragon's Den called you, why you wanted to explore the idea and then eventually say yes uh, to being on TV and being in the den, investing in others, but also just showing a different side, not only of you, but giving your opinions to Canadians. Everything I've done in my life, I, I didn't know how to do. Like I told you, I came here, was in Malvern, then I came to Bay Street, being in this firm, never been in a, in a place like that before. Then I went to Canvas Global, never really did a locker job before. Then I went to CABC, Mellon, didn't manage people before. Then I went to this firm, Georgeson, didn't work in that industry before. Then I started Kingsdale, never started a business before. Everything I've done were things that were outside my comfort zone. And a lot of people box themselves in and go, you know, I'm not going to go outside my comfort zone, but how are you going to know what you're really good at if you never leave your comfort zone? And so I was able to leave my comfort zone ever, ever since the day I landed in Canada. Every step of the way, I've left my, left my comfort zone. And I learned something new every time. And if I fail, at least I learned something from the failure as well. And so when I got the call, first of all, I didn't think it was real because I was a huge fan of the show. I've always been. And, you know, so I didn't really think it was real and I ignored it, quite frankly. And then Tracy, the producer and, uh, and Molly got sent an email saying, we would like to talk to you. And I saw on the foot, the, the signature line that they're producers of Dragon's Den. <laughs> and I go, OK, this is legitimate. Then <laughs> let, me, let me take the call. And, it, they, and, and this was 2020. And they said, listen, we are looking for an, uh, somebody to, to join the show, a new dragon. And we would like for you to audition for the show. I didn't know what that meant, really. I knew what auditioning is, like right. 10 or 15 people go for a role. And <laughs> but I didn't know how to behave, right? So they, they said, it's going to be virtual. We're going to have pictures. You know the show. You're a fan of the show, yes. And, you know, so we're going to put you in this situation. And people are going to pitch you. And you just ask them questions. And that was the instruction, right? It was not a... Yep, that's the instruction. Know, that was the instruction. And I, and I went on. And I didn't know who I was competing against because they wouldn't tell me that. And the day, you know, so we went there the day off and then there was a, there's a bunch of series of auditions with different people. And there were three people on mine. And then there are, I think, four others that they were doing or three others that they were doing. So I kind of went and I be myself and I don't know everything. And like I said, I'm a student. I learn. I did what I, you know, what I thought was appropriate at the time. And then they called me back sometime later and I said, you know, we would like to offer you the role. And I don't, I don't know what that role is. You know, like so, but I said yes, and I and so I, I I took it on, and you can imagine the first day, right? And 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 I and when we talk about that, sometimes, right? You know, when you think about you, you mentioned that the show has been on for what fifteen seasons, uh, 17, seventeen seasons, seventeen, yeah. But when you came on, fifteen, yeah, fifteen when I came on, and so for fifteen seasons it's been on, and let's say for example, my first season as a rookie, never done television before. And everybody should know that because they never see me on television. (laughs) 
And then they now say, I'm going to compare you to Arlene, to Manjit, to Vincenzo, and you better be just as good as them. My first time on television, my first season, could you imagine how unfair that competition is? I'm never going to be as good as you guys that first time. And if I do, people are going to think I'm trying too hard, right? If I try to push it, it's like you're trying too hard. So all of a sudden, the audiences hate you. You know, your, your, your colleagues hate you. Everybody, because all of a sudden, this person is just trying too hard. So where's the sweet spot that you find to know that you're doing something for the first time? I'm learning from my, from my fellow colleagues on, on the show. I'm listening to the question. But at the end of the day, I can't just sit there with my mouth open, just taking notes because I'm supposed to be performing as well. Right? Right. So, so there's a dual role that I'm playing on the show for the first time. And you've been there. You know, you, you've been there for the first time, too. So you get, you, yeah. you get it. And so the first year was like, wow, you know, kind of find it kind of interesting. But let's say CBC wasn't patient enough. Mm -hmm. And they start to make that comparison to me and the rest of the Dragons. And they say, Wes didn't perform that well this season. And then I'm cut from the show. That's what happens in real life in corporate Canada. Somebody bring their first person of color in the board in, in the C-suite or on the boardroom, and they expect them to perform exactly the same way as somebody who's been there for 15 years. Mm. And it's just not a, a fair comparison. They don't give them the time to ease their way into the job to start contributing in a comfortable way in the future. And so to me, the, the experience of the show and how I'm treated on the show and how I get along with people on the show is, is showing people out there how it should be done and how we should be. What does you said inclusivity should be? It's not about invited to the party, but also being asked to dance while you're at the party. Am I contributing? Am I given a fair shot to show what I can do and, and, and be able to make a mistake or two? The experience was great. I've seen so many people that stopped me along the way. And, you know, when I'm walking down the street and go, man, you know, one day I'm going to be up there because I see you there. And that's what makes me proud. And so I decided to step out my comfort zone because I know what it would mean for so many people that look like me to see me there doing it. And I know it will change so many lives as a result. So true. So true. I think the best advice I got when I went to my audition with 12 others in 2014 was just be yourself. And I think that that is exactly what and all who of us are. We are ourselves. And I think that not only did you have a lot of those firsts that are hard for everybody, for sure. I too never, and I don't think anybody came from TV. But one thing you had added was COVID protocols. So the first time we met you was the first day of shooting. Two years. Which, which I is still had it last season too. Yes, it was crazy. Um, the first time we met you was when we were walking down the hall. We're going into studio. Normally we get a little, <laughs> a little bit more. But um, it, whether it, it be that whole experience, and I think that it is a part of life taking new experiences. And saying, okay, I'm going to make the best out of this because there's so much I cannot control. I'm going to learn something. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to make some new friends. And I am going to actually take this as an opportunity. And, and I think that's what, you know, people say, well, you know, CBC got you on because of all the Black Lives Matter stuff in 2020. Fine. You know, but let's say that's the, the, the you know, so they got me on because I'm Black. But they were going to make the same reason that they, got, they didn't have me on because I'm Black. Because we can't use the same. Right. right. <laughs> I got there because I'm black and I wasn't there because I'm black. So which one do we want to take? The fact right. of the matter is, like you said, this is an entertainment product. This is not, you know, if I'm not performing, if they give me a fair opportunity to perform and I'm not, they got to do what they need to do. They need to sell advertising. They need to get eyeballs on TV and yeah. they need to hear what, the, you know, what the eyeballs are saying to them. 
And so if they go, West Hall is kind of like a nice experiment that you had with this black guy and it's not really working out. Well, maybe there's other black guys that's a lot more capable than me. It doesn't really mean that they're not going to get another black guy. It just mean that this one is not hitting the mark. Right. And that's okay, right? That's, yeah. that's okay. But at least don't say it's because of this why you got it or because of that why you got it. You know, you got to come up with a reason to now go, all right, the opportunity didn't work. It's clear that it didn't, it's, it, it didn't work, but they gave you a fair opportunity to make it work. It's very, very true. I think many of us make a lot of assumptions, but the truth of the matter is that it takes a lot of work and some luck and a variety of other things in order for that to happen. So in closing, I, I think I would ask you, what advice would you give to young entrepreneurs who are listening today? I would say this, and we say it on the show all the time, you're going to get a hundred no's. It doesn't really mean that those no's are always right. A lot of people make big mistakes and they pass on something that they should have said yes to. You're going to see, hear a lot of people tell you that you shouldn't and you should stop. And there's times when you should listen to those people because they have a lot of experience. They've been there, done that. They can see the accident that you're going into and you don't. So you have to take advice from people who you respect, people who have traveled the journey that you're trying to travel. And because those people are always going to be candid to you because they have no reason to tell you otherwise. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you like what we're doing on the show, be sure to follow us, leave us a like, rating, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Be sure to tune in next week for an all new episode with another great guest for more insightful conversation. We'll see you again next time. Cheers.